Welcome to episode 1830 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined as always by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. And today we are joined by our pal Pedro Mora, who is a national baseball writer for Fox Sports and as of this week, a published baseball book author. Hello, Pedro, and congratulations. Hi, Ben. Hi, Meg. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we are happy to. So we'll have to save some banter and news for next time because we've got a lot on the docket today. Primarily, we will be previewing the AL West with Pedro's help. But we should talk a little bit about your book, which came out just this week and is called How to Beat a Broken Game. The Rise of the Dodgers in a League on the Brink. So if we had planned ahead, perhaps we would have had you on the NL West preview just to get the Dodgers audience. But this book is more than a Dodgers book. And so it is sort of appropriate to have you on any preview podcast, I think. And when you sent me the early copy of this book, I was thinking, well, it's just about the Dodgers World Series. Is it only about the Dodgers? Am I going to learn a lot about that Dodgers championship? And the answer is yes, you will learn a lot about that Dodgers championship. But also, it is not just about the Dodgers. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But if you're not necessarily a Dodgers fan who may not want to read a book-length account of how the Dodgers won that World World Series, there's still a lot for you here, and that becomes very clear early on in the book that the scope is a lot broader than any one team or any one season. So this book has been glowingly blurbed by one Sam Miller. It has regrettably not been blurbed by me because it happened to arrive right around the same time as a baby of mine, and so I didn't have a whole lot of bandwidth at that time, but I wish that I had because it's a good book that I would recommend even if I don't have a blurb on the cover. So you want to give people the pitch for how to beat a broken game? Sure, yeah. Thank you so much for, for that endorsement. And I, I would just like to say, before I enter into pitch mode, I I think that um, I think I'm, I'm very happy with your decision to have on uh, accomplished shit poster Craig Goldstein for the NLS <laughs> episode. So don't, you don't need to apologize to me for that um, at all. I was it, it was very entertaining. So and um, I was just I just kept as I listened, I was just like muttering accomplished shit poster to myself like every two minutes. He will be forever known as that ever since I dubbed him that in an article yeah so, so thank you for that the pitch is um the pitch is that the dodgers are obviously the most successful franchise of the of this um of this era you know since andrew Friedman arrived there in uh, in the fall of 2014 and um we try to, to to peel back and examine why that is and um and what the techniques are that they've employed to such great success and and you know what their uh, what their impacts on the on the broader game are to look back both on the business and the game of baseball you know i think i learned a lot in the in the reporting of the book you know i did not realize the extent to which andrew friedman himself was was directly responsible for instituting the defensive shift in tampa and sort of spreading that around the sport you know there's arbitration techniques that he is also um 
you know, widely credited with, uh, with, with spearheading and, and, and spreading out to the broader sport. So it's, um, the Dodgers are, you know, a, this is, this sounds obvious, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're more responsible maybe than some people realize for what, what baseball looks like today. Uh, and when I say the Dodgers, I think, I mean, the people involved there. And so it's, um, it's our attempt to, to explain how this happened and, 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 and take stock of where baseball is both good and bad. And, um, you know, and in so doing, you know, appreciate the, the, what they accomplished in 2020 and the joy within it. And also the, um, you know, maybe what it's cost, uh, for teams to optimize it at all costs. So, um, I hope people like it. I'm, uh, it's such an exciting time for me having worked on this last year and then having it be out there in the, in the world, I'm still getting used to like, having this much delay between being done with something and it being out in the world. I mean, yeah, previously the best part of book writing. No, no, not really. But you know, it's, it's cool now. It's very cool now. And so um, I'm, I'm excited to hear what people think. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about it a little bit. I don't have anything like Ben's excuse for not having yet read the book. Um, but I'm curious, you know, we've, I think we've seen in the last couple of years, you know, folks like Theo Epstein sort of be self-reflective in public about some of the changes that have happened in the game and the ways in which they're good, but also the ways in which they may have, have gone slightly awry and diminished the viewing experience for fans. And I'm curious in the course of your reporting, how much sort of self-reflection there really was around that question for folks who are still in the game and actively trying to win within parameters that they have themselves helped to set? Good question. Um, I would say some, but not not a ton. I think that, you know, a, a lot of people simply see it as it is their job to exploit the loopholes and inefficiencies within the game and that and that the costs are not part of their their responsibility to consider. And that, you know, it's it's not their job to make the product enjoyable for fans. It's their job to win games. That's what they're paid to. That's what they're compensated for. And so, you know, I think it's it's useful here to explain that, like, Andrew Friedman hates watching the defensive shift in action. You know, he, he described it as a as a terrible quality of life play, which is a good phrase, I think, and apply applicable to a lot of life. But, you know, this is also the, the person that, you know, that does it the most, right, that his teams, you know, use this to exhaustion since, you know, we're, we're talking about over a decade now. And so when you realize that teams are doing things that they know make the product worse to appreciate, but better to win, <laughs> that's, that's, why, that's why we're in this position now. And, um, you know, that I'm not, to, not to villainize, you know, the people, this is their job, you know, that's, sure. that's what they're supposed, that's what they're tasked to do. But I just, I'm posing the question, I suppose, of like, you know, at what point do we need to, you know, do we need to consider the actual enjoyment of the product? Because that's why we're here. That's why all three of us are on this is that we fell in love with this. And I, you know, I don't think it's sacrilegious to say that the product is, is uh, less entertaining than it was when we were kids, obviously, because everyone thinks that, but even, even since, you know, a decade ago, as balls and plays, balls and play have decreased uh, dramatically. Mm -hmm. And there's a book about every championship team, just about, and sometimes it's kind of the quickie turnaround in a single off season, repackage your coverage from the preceding season sort of book. This is not that. This is a more in-depth reported wider scope, as I noted, project. But you were covering the Dodgers during that time for The Athletic, and you previously covered the Dodgers and the Angels for the LA Times. So you have some AL West experience as well relevant to today but what was it like covering that team during that pandemic season and then writing about it because 
in the moment, I guess the access that you had to that team was somewhat restricted. And then writing a narrative about that season, there's still some question of like, how would the season have been different if it had been 162 games? I don't think anyone doubts that Dodgers roster's greatness. And in fact, I lament that we didn't get to see how great it would be over the course of a full season. But how did that complicate either the reporting or the narrative structure? Yeah, it's certain it's a, it's a, it was a, a big element to to work around for sure. Um, I think that I was lucky to have been on the beat in the years before that, right? You know, you would never have been able to do this if 2020 was the first season you were covering the team, right? Because I knew that some of the people around and whatnot was able to sort of follow, um, you know, functionally from afar for a while there. So when I think about 2020, I think about the the start of the um of the of spring training before the pandemic reached our consciousness, right? It was already here, but we didn't realize it. And um, it was such a contentious, like drama-filled spring training in a really strange way with the Astros fallout. You know, there was um there was like a week there where it was essentially like covering like a wrestling or like politics, and that like people were just fighting back with words and not with anything else. And it was a strange um it was such a strange uh. Time. I mean, you know, Carlos Correa had told Ballin- Cody Bellinger to, to shut the f up, and, and all of that. It was a, it was a, it was an entertaining, oddly entertaining time, and then it all shut down. And so, following it from afar was not necessarily fun, but it, from a personal perspective, obviously, it was. Not that anyone cares about that. I enjoyed being home for the first time, you know, during the summer. So it, uh, it, it was interesting going back and revisiting it the next year. I would say that what happened there was there was so little like on the ground reporting of the 2020 Dodgers as it happened, as just like for every team. But that left me a lot of um, ground to till the next year, you know, and um, there nobody had really reported about what it was like to be in the bubble at the time because it was, you know, we weren't really allowed to talk to them. They were not incentivized to talk to us in any way. So it was, um, it was basically easy to go back and add some color is what I should, is how I should put it. And, um, and learn a little bit more about what the bubble was like. I'm not sure how much people actually care about that in retrospect, but we'll see. You know, I tried to add some context to, to, the, to that month long stretch the Dodgers spent there. And I think just because they, they, you know, it led to, it led to history to your question, Ben, like how, how good could they have been? And you know, how much does it count? Because it was a 162. I can't say I really spent any time at all on that in the, in the book, just because like, I mean, it, it's unanswerable, right? Like what's, what, what, what good does it really serve to, to explore that in any detail? But it, I would just say it allowed the, the, the strangeness in 2020 allowed me to go back and kind of have, it was, it was as close to a blank slate as you'll have with the championship team, right? There just wasn't a ton out there about that month when they were in Texas. Can't take consideration of hypotheticals away from us. That's all we have on this podcast. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's that's that's what you guys do well. I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a great <laughs> hypothetical person. Yeah. <laughs> You like to remain in the realm of reality. Well, that's good. Keep your feet on the ground, unlike us soaring off into hypothetical land. So the subtitle, as I noted, is How to Beat a Broken Game. How did you think about sort of towing the line between being, I guess, a realist about the way the sport is played now and documenting, as you said, maybe some of the changes that have not been so fan-friendly without coming off as doom and gloom and baseball is dying and, you know, 
being basically a, a baseball grump, to use the term that Meg has used to describe some broadcasters who spend much of their airtime just uh, lamenting the way the sport is worse or different from how it was when they played. So, you know, presumably some people are coming to your book because they love baseball, so they don't want it just to be nonstop. Baseball is bad now and the Dodgers broke it, but... Also, maybe some people are coming to this to figure out how we got here and what the potential solutions could be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is it's a it's a great question, and it was probably the central one that I wrestled with in the book. Is like you you, you know you don't want to read something that's all you know you're you're reading this because you have some passion for it, right? Pretty much universally, I would be surprised if somebody's not you know interested deeply interested in baseball and is trying to read this book. So, I, I what I would say to them is I love baseball too, and um, you know part of our jobs as journalists, I'm stretching here a little bit, is to sort of shepherd it and, and, and try to, I don't want to overstate what we're doing here, but like almost be like a watchdog of sorts in terms of like following what is changing and the the negative impacts of it as it, um, as it unfolds. And so it's like the way you would care for anything that you loved is that like you, you, you'd like to see a fair evaluation of what is good and what is bad. And this is certainly not a doom and gloom book i don't think you know there are parts of it that are i think the parts that warrant it but there are there are plenty of parts that are celebrating what is great about the game and the um you know the exceptional athletes at the at the heart of it and um you know a good portion of the of the the, the, the top half of it is about the the the, pe- the players involved in, in leading the dodgers to this this street breaking um this world series win and so it's it's a, it's a celebration of them i mean I, I think chiefly and then it's an examination of like why, given how great they are at this game, why the game is still less entertaining than it used to be and how, how we got here. Do you think that they still have a significant edge on other organizations in any area or have other teams learned to copy them or to poach people from the Dodgers and kind of catch up and can they be stopped ever? Um, if- can they be stopped ever? I suppose they were stopped last year by the the, the San Francisco <laughs> Giants, right? I mean, sort of, barely. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, both in the regular season and they sort of, the Giants sort of undermined them in the postseason and, and forced them to extend themselves to the point where they lost the next round. I'd argue. Um, I, what, you know, if the question is when the Dodgers will not be good again, I have absolutely no idea. You know, like it, 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 it you know, I posed that to every basically everyone I asked, I talked to for this book, and like. You know, you, you hear some answers where it's, you know, we're talking a decade plus, right? And um, I think that's reason, a reasonable assumption at this point. I mean, there's, I don't see, I, I, you know, I know on the, on the episode with Craig, you were talking about that part of their core is aging out, but there's, there is, you know, there is more of a core waiting to be, to emerge, right? And, um, and they have the ability to retool and they have not, they have not overcommitted financially beyond the next season, really, to the point where I would bet on them consistently winning, you know, 90 plus games. Like I think I would guess, I mean, I would, I, I don't know how many, it would be more than, more than four years from now, I would say the next time they don't win 90 games in a season. And maybe, you know, you could convince me to say eight, 10 years. So have, have, um, have other teams caught up? I think the Giants are the central threat here, given that, you know, they are run by the former number two in Los Angeles and a person who was responsible for a lot of their successes there. I think that's a real concern with the Dodgers because, Farhan has displayed the same sort of uh, patience that Andrew Friedman has succeeded with in Los Angeles and has almost as much, if not quite as much, financial flexibility. But in general, I think a lot of teams are still still far from catching up to the Dodgers in player development. You know, I don't think we can, you can't explain their their um, their farm system edge any other way than that they're 
vastly superior in player development to many other teams, you know, given that the Dodgers don't have the draft picks that other teams have in terms of the, you know, the top talents, they should not be acquiring some of the best player, best prospects in baseball. And year after year, they, um, they have a, a top system that really should only be happening if they're able to tap into, you know, what the likes of the Cincinnati Reds are supposed to tap into. And they're, as long as they take advantage of the teams that are, um, that are at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think they're going to, they're going to stay here. And um, I, I, I don't see the new CBA preventing them from doing that in any way. In fact, I think it's going to be even harder uh, for teams like the Arizona Diamondbacks to contend with the Dodgers. I don't know where, I don't know when that's going to happen. You know, when are the D-backs going to be better than the Dodgers um, in terms of true talent level? I have no earthly idea. Um <laughs> And um, I don't say that as a criticism or de- uh, of their of their GM Mike Hazen. I think that that actually seems to be a fairly well run organization. It's just the odds are against them in every way. And to the extent that the game is broken, do you think it can be unbroken? And do you think that any of the steps that MLB seems to be trying to take with rules changes will actually address any of the ways in which maybe the Dodgers have figured out how to break baseball or gain an edge? I mean. There's always going to be a cat and mouse and a push and pull right between teams that are seeking to exploit every edge and other teams that are trying to copy them and catch up with them. And then the league, hopefully, that can step in when things get to a point where maybe it becomes spectator unfriendly. So can these trends be curbed? Do you think that we can get back to a point where we're not always talking about baseball being broken? I don't know that there's ever been that point in baseball history, frankly. I mean, baseball has been reputed to be dying or getting worse basically since the start, but it does seem like these days you can hardly have a conversation about baseball without that subject surfacing. Yeah, two answers to that. Will we ever get to a point where we're not discussing baseball as being broken? I, I'd say no. You know, I think that's that's going to remain. Can we get to a point where it's it's fixed in the sense that it's better than it is now? I, I think so. I'm not nearly that pessimistic of a person. I think some of the some of what baseball is experimenting with in the minor leagues is is shown signs that it could help. I mean, I you know I I know some scouts, one scout in particular who um, you know whose lives last year improved dramatically when when the pitch timers went up in the minor leagues. Like people who are tasked with um you know with watching these games nightly. And that, you know, all of a sudden their quality of life dramatically improved when 25 minutes were, were shaved off of the typical game. And all of a sudden they were gifted an extra half hour in their, in their, in their day, every, almost every day. And um, I, think, I think a lot of us would, be, would enjoy baseball a lot more if they found a way to essentially encapsulate the same amount of action in a 25 to 30 minute shorter package. And so that's the goal here, I think, is like w- whether it's increasing the, the or decreasing the, the time of game or increasing the pace of play. If you can do a little bit of both, I think that would dramatically increase the, the enjoyment of the average spectator. Uh, and and I, that, that should be the goal. And I think it is the goal. And I, I, I think that, you know, some of, I, I, do I think that the executives and people in charge of the sport understand the issue as, as fans of the game and are, try, and are desperately trying to fix it to, to please the, the people who are paying to put this game on? No, I don't. But I think, I think there are some people within the sport that know this and are working towards it. And I think eventually the dollars will speak and, and they'll, they'll see that they're losing interest in the sport and then they'll act accordingly. And I, I think we're starting to see that. All right. Well, the book again is called How to Beat a Broken Game, The Rise of the Dodgers in a League on the Brink. 
Don't tune out if you're not a Dodgers fan. There is a lot for you here regardless, and you can get it in all the various formats. It's out from public affairs, but you can get the ebook, you can get the hard copy, you can get the audiobook, which Pedro read himself, and he has a nice, pleasing, resonant voice, as you can tell. Reward him for his work. It's hard to read a full book. Audiobooks are difficult to record, so go listen to a lot of Pedro, and we will link to the book on our show page. So. Should we talk a little bit about the AL West? Would love to. And thank you for that that wonderful endorsement, Ben. Much appreciated. Of course. So the AL West, there are some teams that are moving up. There are some teams that are moving down. But I guess at the top, we are still talking about the Houston Astros, even though they keep losing core pieces of this recent run that they've had, which they've been about as successful as any franchise other than the Dodgers over the past several seasons. But they lose Springer. They lose Cole. Now they've lost Carlos Correa. And yet they still seem to be pretty comfortably at the top if you look at any projections or playoff odds or anything of the sort. But things get more interesting now when you look down in the rest of the division, not with the A's necessarily, who are taking a step back. That would be a charitable way to put it. But you do have the Rangers, who are suddenly spending a ton of money and trying to get good again. You have the Mariners, who are coming off sort of a fluky but fun season and are now trying to consolidate that into an actual talented team. I don't want to shade the 2021 Mariners too much, but they were a fun differential team more than a run (laughs) differential team, and maybe they will try to split the difference this season. And then, of course, you have the Angels, the team that... I will watch probably more than any other this season, regardless of whether it's actually good because of Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. But there is at least a little more reason for optimism than there has been of late, I suppose. So a lot of interesting storylines here. I guess we should start with Houston, and we've been employing this same six-question format for each of our previews here, where we use these six prompts just to talk about each team loosely and spark some discussions. So if we stick with that format, do you have a best off-season move for the Astros, who were not a particularly busy team when it came to additions this winter? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote, I, I tried to sketch these out, and I just wrote Verlander, I guess, because I mean, there's, there's not a lot of other options. Uh, but I mean, and, and you know, Justin Verlander been a pretty good pitcher, so it could work out pretty well. But yeah, I, I think he's my answer. Yeah. You're not enthused about Hector Neris coming into the fold? No, uh, not exactly. Although I think the bullpen's pretty good. I mean, yeah. the, the Houston's done some really interesting uh, stuff in their bullpen. I think you know, I, I'm I'm still fascinated by their approach at last year's deadline to trade. You know actual position player pieces for relievers and um you know their the position players they traded away at the deadline ended up being pretty good with um with abraham toro uh, brian De, uh, to the marlins i'm forgetting the last name but i think it's de la cruz and then mm-hmm. um, also miles straw to 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 cleveland like the idea of trading three competent position players just to improve your pen is strange and it worked okay for them i'd say and it, it seems like they they still have a pretty good handle on it um, but yeah, I, I think Verlander is is the option in that you're trying to contend. You need a a person who you can envision starting, being happy about starting game one of of a postseason series for you. And I think he is that guy. You know, obviously, Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia did did just fine in those roles largely last season. But I think Verlander is, a, is gives you a little bit more hope, although also a lot of uncertainty. But more hope in the sense that like this is a person who has done this, who who 
according to scouts, looks pretty good this spring and before he signed looked pretty good. And so I think there's a, you know, there's a real chance you have a, a, a you're back to having a four or five win starter at the front of your rotation there. Yeah. That would be big. I mean, he is 39 years old, and it's been a long layoff, although it's been, what, 18 months or something since the Tommy John? It's been a while. It's long enough now that you would expect him to be totally, fully, physically recovered, although sometimes there's rust that needs to be knocked off after that long inactivity. But yeah, he has pitched pretty effectively this spring, so I don't know how many innings you can count on from him at this point in his career. I mean, the last time we saw him healthy for a full season, he was still the you know heavy workload Justin Verlander who was leading the major leagues in innings pitched with 223 in 2019 I don't know whether we're gonna have a starter get to 200 innings this year that could very well be the first full season in major league history that does not have one but I don't know that he's gonna give you those innings anymore and you know maybe you just hope that he replaces the cranky innings that you lost and maybe better on an inning per inning basis if not necessarily bulk wise but there is a lot of depth in that rotation so yeah you do just sort of hope that he gives you the game one starter because it looks like they won't have to worry about piecing together the rest of the rotation from various sources yeah they, they've done a, a good job assembling you know their six and seven starters and those are thrust into higher roles now that lance mccullers is out but there's there's some serious depth there that i think you know 25 teams would would envy right if not more than that yeah yeah, his deal is interesting, Verlander's that is, because, you know, on the one hand, you'd assume that they know better than anyone what the, the state of his health was before he signed. But the innings that his vesting option kind of kicks in at for 2023 at 130 makes you think that they're not expecting the full complement of 200 innings anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you pinpoint the rotation as the strength of this roster or would you identify something else? I think that the strength is the top three hitters who are, you know, among the the top, the best in the game. I mean, there's some competition now with, you know, another team we'll discuss later and obviously the Dodgers. But, you know, between Tucker, Bregman and I mean, if you want to count Jordan Alvarez, that's a that's a that's a great trio. And then that doesn't include Jose Altuve. I mean, they have a the top end hitting talent is, is really high there in Houston, obviously. And um, there's also a couple other hitters that you, um, you know, Mike, between Michael Brantley and Yuli Gurriel, these are these are players who had good seasons last year, and you still project to be to be pretty good. I'm I'm I'll take the middle of the 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 one through five or one through six of the Astros lineup as their strength. Yeah, one of the storylines I'm interested in, jumping ahead a bit, but how good is Bregman or how great is Bregman? Because it's been a few years now since he was an MVP caliber player. I mean, he was an eight-win player in 2018 and 2019, and then in 2020, he was not quite at that level, but who knows, it's 2020. And then last year, you know, again, like he was productive. I mean, he was an above-average hitter, but he was dealing with that wrist injury, right? And that was clearly hampering him, especially in the postseason, you could see. And then he had that corrected so does he bounce back to being that eight win guy or will he not be that again I mean that would go a long way toward making up for the absence of Correa if he were able to completely regain his form yeah I'm with you and you know expecting him to be somewhere in the middle there you know at like a four to five win range I still think that's a you know that's obviously a very valuable player and I you know I think there were um, potentially some some additional tools that he had access to in 2018 and 2019 (laughs) Um, that may may be factoring into his success during that time outside of the wrist injury. But, um, you know, I, I still think he's a good player, a very good defender at third one healthy. And so, I, I yeah, I would expect that to be a, um, 
him to be a four to five win guy. And maybe, yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's more potential there. I'm fascinated to see what Gurriel does this year because you have a first baseman whose power really fell off relative to what he's achieved in prior years, but still managed to post a 134 WRC plus and close to three and a half wins just by shifting the the sort of shape of his production. But he's almost 38, so I'm going to be really curious to see what what he does. Yeah, he's such an interesting hitter. He reminds me when when I covered the Angels in um, sixteen and seventeen, Unel Escobar was there, and the the bat to ball ability there was reminiscent to me of what Guriel can do in the sense that like there's the plate coverage that he offers is is like among the best in the sport, and so I I think he is one of those people who you don't need massive power from, and really they signed him not expecting I think you know this is a different regime, but. I don't think they brought him to Houston with the idea that this would be a 30 homer guy. Obviously he went, he did that once, but that's not, that wasn't his selling point. The selling point there is like, this dude is going to strike out less than 80 times in a season. He's going to hit 300 probably. And, um, and that's a, a valuable skill, especially in contrast with the rest of the lineup. I think I think it's really nice to have a one player on at least who can do, you know, who offers such a contrasting skill in this, in this era. And, um, but yeah, I mean, you're right, Meg, that like, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to be valuable if you're hitting 12 to 15 homers as a first base. He is reportedly potentially in the best shape of his life. So there's that. Oh, and I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. That changes <laughs> everything, actually. I, he fascinates me. He's one of these players who reports to spring training in the best shape of his life, seemingly in consecutive springs. Sometimes you see guys come in and, and you see the same story written about the player. Like he changed his regimen. He lost weight, whatever it is. I mean, sometimes they ping pong back and forth between bulking up and getting more flexible, whatever it is, whether it works in that previous season or not, they do something different. But if you look, there are headlines from last spring, Astros Yuli Gurriel seeing benefits of weight loss at spring training. And he says he went on a three-month diet this offseason to shed 15 pounds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he reported to camp this spring, and he has again lost 15 pounds thanks to a new diet. So I don't know whether he has lost an additional 15 pounds. He's like, hey, I lost 15 pounds last year, and I won a batting title. Maybe I should lose 15 pounds every spring. I don't know if that works. Eventually, you will lose too many pounds, potentially. But did he put some of those pounds back on, and now he has just lost them again? I don't know what the story is here. But if you believe in history repeating itself, he lost 15 pounds last year. He won a batting title. He has now again lost 15 pounds. So make of that what you will. <laughs> we so we need more. Pers- wait, wait, Ben. I have. There's yeah. one real question though. Real, yeah. real, very important question on this subject. What percent effort is Jose Altuve operating at right now? That's the real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good question too. I don't know how high he's gotten. I haven't seen that reported this spring. Yeah, we need that information. <laughs> <laughs> so if the top of the lineup is a strength, then maybe the rotation depth is also a secondary strength. What would you pinpoint as the weakness of the Astros? I think I'm going to give a lot of answers of the same person here coming up now, and it involves the the you know the vacated shortstop position. I think that there's a lot of reason to think that Jeremy Pena could become a an asset. I don't you know I think it's still fair to say that it's a weakness because it's they lost Carlos Correa and they're counting on somebody who's not done this. And um, yeah. Correa was a sure bet you know when healthy to be productive. And so I think it's I think it's the shortstop position. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's obviously a highly touted prospect. He's not super young. He's like 24 and a half years old. 
and he hit extremely well at AAA last year, 287, 346, 598 with good defense too, but that was only 30 games, right? And prior to that, he hadn't played above high A. So yes, I mean, you look at the projections, you look at what he accomplished, you'd say he's probably ready, but there's, you know, some uncertainty, some risk there. He struck out a fair amount of times at AAA last year in that smallish sample. I mean, 26.3% strikeout rate, 4.5% walk rate in his time at AAA. So not the best ratio there so you just never know if someone like that is going to hit the ground running obviously like the short-term ceiling is a lot lower than Carlos Correa so there's that on the other hand I mean it worked out for them last year where they let George Springer walk and they replaced them with you know much lesser known players right and basically a center field platoon and those platoon partners ended up outperforming George Springer and actually being one of the best center field units in baseball so in that instance they kind of cheaped out or, or went with the lesser known much more inexpensive options and it paid off for them but yeah they're definitely taking a risk here in trusting another position to an unproven player yeah i i think the the crazy thing with the with their outfield is just how many options they had right they had when they, they let springer go because they had jake myers they had Chaz mccormick jose Sri obviously emerged and and miles Straw, who i mentioned earlier i mean like, like that's to know that you have a few different plays if, if one of them, you know, doesn't work out is, is nice. You know, Lemnis Diaz isn't is a better than nothing option, but you know, they're counting on Jeremy Bain here and that and that is a look is maybe a little bit different than when they decided to let Springer go. Yeah, our depth charts project Pena for a 250, 304, 424 line with a one hundred WRC plus, which, you know, to project a league average hitter for a guy who, to Ben's point, only has you know, 133 plate appearances in, in AAA. Not terrible, but certainly not what we're projecting for Correa. <laughs> no, and but, the, you know, the Astros probably look at it as that's he's going to slot in eighth in their lineup, seventh or eighth. Right. And so that's that's not so bad, right? So breakout pick, anyone you like here to make a major stride? I mean, I, <laughs> Jeremy Pena. you heard of this guy? Uh, he only played a little bit in AAA last year. Struck out a lot, but the, uh, the yeah. most important rookie category that comes next. That's yeah, that's um, you know, going going to a lot of the same uh, same players here. Um, I, yeah. breakout pick. Um, you know, I, I like their um, I, I like their young starters. I, I don't know if it, you know what's uh, I need, we need a, we need an agreed upon threshold for how many wins a player needed to have put up the previous season for him to no longer be eligible to be breaking out. It's it's yeah. twelve. If it's more than there. twelve wins, then career. Then, no. <laughs> oh oh, in yeah. one season. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I'd like to know like what you know what's um like it seems like both Valdez and Garcia are probably past that, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we tend to be pretty loose of this definition because we operate under the assumption that all of the people that get predicted to be breakouts have quietly broken out the season prior and we're just now noticing. So, Oh, you're saying think, we're all just using, like trying to steal valor from these fellows with, with our yeah, predictions? Yeah, a little oh, bit. Interesting. But, you know, Gar- Garcia and Valdez got such exposure during the postseason that they might they might be too good for this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, I think in the sense that I think Pena is going to be a couple is going to be fine and is like going to finish like when the Astros get into the postseason, what he's going to be their shortstop. I, I, so I, I suppose that means like that's a breakout, right? If you've never played in the major leagues and the team is now counting on you to, you know, and, and you and you last the season in that role. I think, yeah, I think I think he's the breakout pick, you know, despite being the weakness. And, um, you know, he's also the most important rookie. 
(laughs) (laughs) Right. I will mention Josh James, who is 29 years old at this point, but he really hasn't been healthy for a couple years, and it seems like he is healthy now. And I remember when he first came up in 2018, and he just looked totally overpowering and dominant, and he just hasn't really sustained that and hasn't been healthy most of the intervening years. So if he is back and healthy now, then I could see him taking a step or at least, you know, turning the clock back to that small sample in 2018 and sustaining that over more of a season, which would be a a big boost, I think, to this team. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you, and I think McCormick and Myers. If you want to, I don't know that either of them has broken out. I, I that seems that seems fair to me that that they're still they're still pre breakout, although they did mm-hmm. impress last year. And I, I I I like both of them, and I think that um that they have at least you know between them at least one competent center fielder. Mm-hmm. So, are there any other interesting angles or stories on this team that are kind of catching your eye? I mean. I think it's notable that under Jim Crane, the team hasn't spent a ton on any individual player or really on the roster as a whole. I mean, given their success and their market size, you might have expected them to shell out for more of the players who have departed. And it hasn't really hurt them yet. And it looks like they're still clearly the class of this division. So maybe it's partly just that their competitors haven't quite pushed them enough. And I think there was a question, I mean... A couple of years ago, a few years ago, it was like, hey, how long can the Astros last, right? Like the question that we asked about the Dodgers, will they ever not be good? It was much easier to envision a scenario where the Astros could just kind of age out. And I guess that's still a risk, but at least for now, I mean, I don't know that this is the Astros super team that we have seen before. This may not be the best version of the Astros, but it seems like there's no reason not to pick them. Like a lot of things would have to go wrong for them and right for the Angels or the Mariners or the Rangers to really make a run, I think. Yeah, yeah, I might be a little higher on the, the upside potential of the Angels than you are, it sounds like, but we can get to that in a second. I, I would say that the other subject of interest for me with the Astros is like, as you said, Crane not spending money. Um, and, and then I would say where he opted to spend money, which is on, I mean, most recently on Lance McCullers. Who has mm-hmm. ne- you know has never really posted a full season's worth of pitching, um, and then the year he did yeah. last year, he was unavailable when it mattered most. And I, I, I'm I'm very curious as to like as to why that they decided to make that move in that time for a player who obviously exhibits plenty of potential, but is you know a serious injury concern and remains that way. You know, and as he approaches 29, it's not going to um you know it's not going to bait. So I, I'm I'm you know obviously with. You know, when we talk about why teams didn't sign Carlos Correa this offseason, I think there's an element of, well, they thought he was going to make more money. But the Astros had the ability to, to sign him, we presume, for, for, for similar to what the, um, the Tigers ultimately did, and they opted against it. And um, I think for that money, he's a, you know, a, a great bet. And I, I think, you know, obviously, we're talking different AAV realms here, but McCullers just is um, you know, not a great bet to, be, to post 150-plus innings in a, in a given season. And um, I uh, I wonder about that that move, and um, I think it's it's really interesting that they chose to invest in him as a um, a cornerstone of the franchise. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to see how Kyle Tucker continues to progress as well, just because, I mean, really, he was fantastic last year, and I think it took a while for people to pick up on that, and part of it was that he just heated up and, and kept getting better seemingly as the season went on, but 
For someone who hit 30 homers and has that kind of power, and that was only in 140 games and also struck out like 16% of the time, I mean, that's like Brantley-esque. That's really good in today's game that's been broken by the Dodgers. So I think uh, (laughs) you hope that he can continue to progress and and maybe even play more games. Because I guess, you know, the offensive depth, we talked about the pitching depth and the fact that they have a lot of starters and guys like Christian Javier, who maybe are headed for the bullpen but could start if needed you know their bench is not the deepest I mean you have Martin Maldonado who the Astros just seem to really like as someone who works well with pitchers and does things well defensively but just doesn't hit then you have Jason Castro who maybe hits better on the bench but beyond that like you know Brantley you can almost pencil in for an injury at some point every year and then you're looking at Jose Siri out there I guess and you know if Pena doesn't hit the ground running then you've got Nico Goodrum who came in or Diaz so you know there would be big steps back there and there are already maybe a a couple holes or at least one big hole late in the bottom of that lineup so it's it's strong but maybe the depth isn't quite there that they had in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think we would all, I I feel comfortable speaking up that we would all feel better about this team if they had re-signed Carlos Correa. Um, And so (laughs) it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think it must be, you know, what you said, Ben, that, you know, that they don't feel pushed by the rest of the division. And um, because otherwise this, this team, I don't think projects to be all that, all that great. I mean, it might, it might be the worst division, you know, it, it might be the worst division winner come year end. And so... I, you know, and you'd project them for another two or three if they had added Correa. So I, I, I'd, I'd like them a lot more that way. And I think uh, to briefly talk about Kyle Tucker, I, I see him destined to be one of those players who is, is like, is unknown despite being great at baseball. He just doesn't. There, nothing about him seems to be attracting attention of the wider baseball-following public. He's a very quiet fella, and I think that uh, I think he's destined for like the the Brantley sort of existence where he just posts and no one um, no one outside his local market properly appreciates him. Yeah, he ends up becoming your favorite hitter's favorite hitter because of the approach, but not someone we talk about as much. I'm going to blow your mind and tell you that the Astros are actually, at least by our projections, slated to be the third best team in the American League. <laughs> yeah. Third best team in the American League? Yeah, they're ahead of the White Sox by our projections by two wins. They trail only the Blue Jays and the Yankees. And the Yankees only by a teensy tiny little bit. So it is a perhaps a the whole is greater than the sum of the parts kind of a situation. Yeah, I, mean, I don't but. disagree with that. I mean, but like, you know, w- would you be surprised if the White Sox ended up a couple wins better than them? No. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would I would probably say that they're the, to me, they're the fourth best team in the, in the American League. But that's, you know, that's that, that that's not a problem necessarily. <laughs> they also have, I think, the second weakest projected strength of schedule yep. in the league, although the White Sox have the weakest. So that doesn't explain that. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about a team that is near and dear to my heart and my viewing habits, the Angels. And yeah, you know, you just said that maybe you're higher on them than I am. I don't, maybe it's just that I've been burned before. I mean, I can certainly dream on the Angels and construct a scenario where things finally turn out well for them this year, but it's tough just because, uh, as my colleague at the Ringer, Zach Cram, recently learned, the Angels have undershot their fan graphs playoff odds projections 
for the past seven years, <laughs> seven consecutive years, they have fallen short of their projected win total, and no other team, I, I think, was more than four in a row. So it's not that they have undershot by so many wins every year necessarily, but they just always seem to underachieve. And I guess if you were going to pinpoint one reason why, it would be because of the pitching and just the lack of pitching and then pitching injuries. So a big priority this offseason was, or at least should have been, shoring up that area of the roster. So that leads to the first question about best offseason move. What do you think it was? And do you think they did enough in that area? I do not. I do not. And yeah, I do. I want to be. Uh, I, w- I want to be clear in that I dream on the Angels as a possibility. Like I think there is. There is. You have to preserve that ten or twenty percent possibility that everything clicks and they're great. And maybe twenty percent is too high. Five to ten percent possibility. But I still would project ultimately that they're not going to make the playoffs because of the same thing. Because of everything you just said, Ben. And this is we've seen this many times before. You know, one year pitchers on one year deals that are. That don't really like that the, you question the upside of, you know, that's 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 right in the Angels realm, you know, Matt Harvey, Trevor Cahill, Noah Syndergaard. Like, I just don't see the, um, you know, the best case scenario for Noah Syndergaard is 130 innings of three ERA baseball, which is, which is, you know, probably worth about 25 million on the open market. And so, that's what they got from Otani last year. So, that's great. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish that, but like, that's still right. not enough. And they need more than that. And I, I if you're going to, spend that much on one year where there's no long-term upside on a player i'd like to think that you could at least get a full season out of him and they're they're not even going to try to to their i mean which is part that's just part of his constraint so i just don't i don't see it i mean i guess if you ask me for best offseason move like i like some of the relievers they added but like not necessarily i don't necessarily like the terms of them you know i don't i don't really like committing multiple years to ryan to para um i like aaron loop as a reliever um, I suppose, yeah. but uh, like he, he's good, but like I, I probably, you know, they, they spent a lot of money on people that probably won't, um, you know, be pushing them over the edge. You know, they, 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 these, these moves make a lot, a lot more sense if they're, if they had maybe three or four more wins on their roster and they were like, like that's the margin between making the playoffs and not. And I don't, uh, maybe that's, maybe that'll prove to be right, but I, I see it more as like they're right around 85 or something like that. So. Yeah. Last year they didn't have a single qualified starter and I don't think that there's anyone who challenges is going to challenge that this year unless Syndergaard is just a lot healthier than we think or like I don't know Reed Detmers performs so well that he gets moved up and then pitches a bunch more than we expect him to it's just a really wild state of affairs like you know the, yeah. within the organization they're really high on Patrick Sandoval who had a nice you know season yeah. last year like you know if you're going to project this fellow for for you know a full season like what's you know what are we expecting to put up ERA FIP wise? Like it's I I don't I don't know that it's project yet. You know I can't project him to repeat a three six ERA over you know over thirty two starts. And so when you look at that, there's just that the rotation's just a house of cards waiting to fall down. And uh, I don't I, yeah I, I don't see it. So. Yeah, I mean like I like Patrick Sandoval's changeup too, but I think that they're betting on more production there than you're likely to get. Right. Yeah. Individually, I like a lot of those pitchers and yeah. hopefully you get more out of Hotani and hopefully Syndergaard is healthy. And yes, Sandoval is pretty good. And I like Reed Detmers a lot too. But yeah, it's almost like, you know, yeah, it would have been nice if they had gone and shopped at the top of the market and gotten some more dependable, stable top of the rotation starter. But even just like a innings eater type, like, I don't know, just like a Wade Miley or, or someone like that. Like, yeah. that's what the Angels have been lacking so often right I mean they've had seasons where they have just had like 
one guy throw 100 innings. I mean, Otani was the only one who did last year, and that's not even a new thing for them. So just to have someone, you know, that's partly a product of the six-pitcher rotation, which they're going with again to help protect Otani, protect Syndergaard, etc. But still, even just to have like a boring innings eater type and, you know, some innings eaters will end up on the Angels and then suddenly they will get hurt. So I don't know that you can always (laughs) count on that necessarily, but still like just a a little more depth there, I think would have been nice, would have raised the floor for this roster. And of course, the floor is already fairly high because of the two guys at the top of the lineup or maybe the three guys at the top of the lineup. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't know if that is your strength, (laughs) but we can talk about what your strength is. Yeah, yeah. My my strength is the I wrote down top top two slash three hitters. So I don't know what you want to count Rendon as, but Anthony Rendon's been really good and is you know sensibly healthy and could be really good again. I think you know the Angels could set records this year of like the the most wins from a duo in baseball history, and and they could conceivably still miss the playoffs. You know, I'd like to know how many wins Otani and Trout could combine to put up and still have this roster miss the playoffs. I think. You can see something like 22, like conceivably. The monkey's paw curls. It's within the realm of possibility. It's an, it's, it, it, we could see some amazing stuff this, this, this season out of this, out of this squad. Yeah, the, the record, I, I believe, because I wrote about this a few years ago when Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez were having great seasons for Cleveland, but I think the record baseball reference war-wise, at least at that time, was 24.2, which was Ruth and Gehrig in 1927, of course. But if you go a little lower than that, it's like 22, you know, Smokey Joe Wood and Tris Speaker, 21.8. Or if you don't do ancient history, Willie Mays and Juan Marshall in 1966, 21.7. So that's the number to shoot for there. It's, it's within range. They both have to stay healthy, but it's feasible. It's within range. 24 is probably outside of range. <laughs> yeah. But maybe, I mean, I guess you have a, a guy who can do both. So it's not, it's, it's within range. I would say eh, maybe, I don't know. But it's, it's, I mean, it, we're talking about, you know, a, a 20 seems totally, totally possible here. But it also, based on, based on Trout, you know, um, succumbing to injury last year and based on the injury risk that is inherent in Shohei Otani, like there's also the possibility that it's, you know, it's, it's single digits. And right. so it's, um, I mean, single digit. I say single digits. Nine wins between the two of them wouldn't even be that bad. I mean, it could be it could be lux, right? If they're not if they're not able to play. So this this team is obviously incredibly dependent on those two, and I think that um, (laughs) you need fifteen really for for it to be a um, for it to be a a playoff season. And without that, I don't I don't see it happening. But I mean that that said, I mean the fact that fifteen is you know very much within reach is a that, that means that's their strength. Obviously, this is the Angels' <laughs> right. strength. Mike, you yeah. know, I, I think if Trout's on the field, he's gonna, he's gonna. I mean, he's going to perform. And he, he was on his on as everyone listening to this knows, he was on path to being, you know, having his best season last year. Yep. I think that he, I think that's within range for him. I think he's motivated to, um, to be a better defender. I, I don't know if this was Joe Madden's intention, but I think when he floated. <laughs> um, I think it might have been. I think when he floated the idea of moving Brandon Marsh to center and Trout to a corner, he motivated Trout to improve at the position, which there's a long history of Trout being motivated to improve based on learning of his weaknesses. And I think yep. that, um, I think we could see that again, you know, whether, whether he'll stay healthy in that, I, I don't know, but I would definitely expect him to be a better center fielder defensively this year than last. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking for a long time about, oh, when will someone surpass Mike Trout? When will he no longer be the best player in baseball? And I think, 
for a lot of people, we have reached that point probably, and maybe even for the projection systems that I think have had Soto ahead of him now, right? But I think that is not based on performance, really. I mean, it's not as if someone has outplayed Mike Trout in terms of a rate basis being better than him. It's just that other players have been more available and more durable than him. And that matters, obviously. And so that's a legitimate thing. But it's not that someone has become a better baseball player than Mike Trout, in my mind at least, because last time we saw him on the field, he was, as you said, playing as well as he has ever played. So I am hopeful that he can get back to that point and that that weird lingering calf injury, I I know that he changed some things about his conditioning and training this winter, and I just hope that that keeps him on the field. And as for Otani, who I talk about on every episode, so I hardly (laughs) need to today, but since we are actually on the subject now, I, I wrote a whole article about this last week and I will link to it but I really believe that he can be even better than he was last year which is just a preposterous thing to expect because he was the best player in baseball and he won a unanimous MVP award and he just made incredible strides and was a breakout player and fulfilled every expectation for what he could do and yet I don't know that we've seen the ceiling like yes he could certainly not remain as healthy as he was last year But performance-wise, nothing about what he did was unsustainable or was unsupported by his physical skills. Like, you look at, you know, comparing his expected stats to his actual stats, and his pitching stats were right in line with the expected stats. His offensive stats, if anything, he actually got a little unlucky, it seems like, given his quality of contact. And it seems like he has a lot more opportunity for playing time this year, too, for various reasons. For one thing, he is going to at least start the season at the top of the lineup where he hit a little late last year but if he is locked in as the leadoff hitter I don't know whether that makes sense from like a you know the book style batting order optimization standpoint just because he does have so much power but If you just want to get Otani a lot of plate appearances, then that's going to help. And obviously, he does have the protection of Trout and Rendon behind him. And I know that lineup protection is overblown typically, but things were bleak last year. Like, (laughs) once Trout and Rendon were Phil Gosselin in the cleanup spot? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And I love Phil Gosselin. I mean, I, I do, but he's not a cleanup hitter. Yeah. It was sad. I I actually, with the the help of Lucas Apostolaris of Baseball Prospectus, I was actually able to determine for that article how the hitters who batted behind Otani hit in the second half of the season. So not a small sample here. The hitters who started games behind Otani or, or just batted behind him at any point, other than pinch hitters, I think, hit 202, 264, 274. And, you know, that's like your number three, number four hitter. So no wonder the Angels were not great last year. But also, like, it got to the point where, I mean, at times, like, Walsh was even hurt for a little while and Fletcher wasn't hitting and Justin Upton was hurt. I mean, there were just, like, no names in that lineup other than Otani and you know, it didn't show up in like the zone rate so much. I mean, he was definitely pitched around in some consequential series, like late in the season against the Mariners when there was something at stake and he was just getting walked constantly. But I think, you know, possibly he put some pressure on himself just like as the only big hitter in that lineup, he was pulling the ball a lot more late in the season, which made him more susceptible to the shifts. So maybe some pressure is off. I don't know. I'm doing some armchair psychology here, but (laughs) put all of that aside 
just the playing time opportunities afforded by, first of all, the Shohei Otani rule, right? So now he can continue to hit as the DH in games that he pitches. That's not an enormous difference, but universal DH is a big thing too. I mean, between those two things, it's like adding 10 to 15 games worth of potential plate appearances because the only games really when he didn't play last year were like in NL parks where there was no DH and sometimes he would pinch hit. So those games, a lot of the time he didn't start. So between that and between the fact that he was going so much deeper into games as he got so much more efficient as a pitcher later in the season and wasn't walking anyone, and you know once he refined that control and, and figured out his pitch mix, I mean, you project that over the full season, he's going to get more innings too. So like, I don't know if there's a limit on just like his energy level. I mean, he said he never really got fatigued at any point last season, and maybe he'll be built up. He says he feels stronger. He's done it for a full season in the U.S. now. So maybe he can handle that, but he already had the most combined plate appearances plus batters faced of any player in a season this century. And it seems like if he stays healthy, he could push that even further. So even if there were some slight performance drop off in some area, he might just make it up in bulk and, you know, go for 50 homers, go for 30 steals, go for the first 50, 25 season in baseball history, whatever it is. You can tell how hyped I am. I mean, it would (laughs) be tough for him to top that season. And yet I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely tell how hyped you are. I feel like I'm, I'm feeling the passion, like, pulsing out. It's, it's nice. It's, it's, I feel good. Yeah, it's, this is ex- as excited as Ben gets about anything. Pretty much. Is, I, feel, I, I already feel better than when I got on here. Wow. I'm all hyped up. Maybe Otani at the top of the lineup is Joe Madden also feeling like we aren't appreciating how good a base runner he is. Maybe this mm-hmm. is just his way to point us toward that. Yeah, not the most efficient base stealer necessarily. No, but... but- Good base runner. Maybe yeah. this is just me covering, having covered Trout in sixteen and seventeen when the the stealing cost him um cost him some time because of injury risk. And I I, I do wonder like when you have that good of a um a bat and an arm, is it worth your why? How much value are you adding as a base dealer? And right. is the risk lot that that is taken on there worth worth it? And I I would lean toward no. I mean, just it's so easy to to sustain an injury that that hinders you um when you're when you're going for second. So I I don't know. I understand that, you know, his speed is ridiculous. I mean, I still remember the first time I saw him get round first, like, and go for second. It's incredible. Yeah. But it's, I, I just don't know if it's, like, worth, when, you're, when your season depends so much on him, like, it, you know, it, it, the value that he is, you know, 90 plus percent of his value is not from the bases. And so I, I wonder if that's worth it. What are we on to? We're on to weaknesses. Well. <laughs> um, a lot Where of should them. we start? Yeah. A lot. Of, the middle infield? I mean, uh, you know, yeah. we talk about shortstop uh, for the Astros. I'd like to see uh, shortstop for the Angels in, in tow. That'd be nice. I believe in David Fletcher as a, as a baseball player. I think he's totally fine. But, you know, if that's your, if that's your, you know, if you're deriving all of your middle infield value from him, that's sort of a problem, I think. You know, he's a good complimentary piece and role player, but they don't really have uh, much at, at short. So I, I think that's a significant weakness they seem to be approaching it in the same way they approach um the rotation which is to try to patch it short term and um that that's not working and it doesn't i i don't i I don't know the upside i don't know what the best case scenario is at a shortstop this year at all for them Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, I like Fletcher too. He's a lot of fun to watch when he's hitting. He had a extended hitting streak last year, which was just incredible because he has this way of just like slapping everything into yeah. right field. It it just it seems like he's it's like unfair that he has cracked that code, but he did have a 70 WRC plus on yep. the season. So I don't know that he figured out baseball exactly, but he's been better than that. I think he could be better than that. But yeah, that is an issue and then they brought back Kurt Suzuki, and I don't really know why. Cause, well, you uh, can't just have one catcher on the roster. No, then. I guess you do need a second catcher, but I don't know that it necessarily needs to be Kurt Suzuki. I'm just I'm salty because he caught Otani a lot, and he can't frame. And no, you guys know how I feel about framing and about Otani, and so that was frustrating. And you have Stassi, who's one of the best framers in baseball. I don't know that he's as great a hitter as he was last year, but they recently extended him. I hope that he gets more playing time and specifically with Otani whom he did work with I think at a driveline facility in February and he worked with them a bit more in the second half of last season but really like that lineup it starts as well as any lineup in the game and so it's just kind of an open question like how much are you going to get out of Jared Walsh who I I think has proven himself now as a, a solid middle of the order guy but Justin Upton, you know, does he have anything left? And then how much are you going to get out of the younger guys? Like, I feel like they really need either Joe Adele or Brandon Marsh to click and ideally both of them. And I guess there are reasons to think that that could happen. And Marsh is a good defender. So he's given you that. And Adele, I know that late last year, he cut down on his strikeouts. And before he got hurt, he was looking promising. But Really, you need those guys who, for now, are flanking Mike Trout and maybe someday soon could displace him in center. One of those guys really needs to lengthen that lineup, I think. Yeah, I think I'm optimistic about Marshall. He had the the shoulder issue last year. His father passed away. Like, there's just a lot going on for for Brandon Marsh. But yeah, you kind of need one or both of those guys to really take a step forward. And I think part of the problem here is that, like, this is a bad farm system. This is a really bad farm system. Like Reed Detmers was their only guy, not only on the top 100, he's their only 50 future value prospect. So some of their guys are further away and you might expect them to help in a couple of years. But if some of these moves that they've made don't work out, either because guys don't take a step forward, they end up being injured, like they're not in a position to deal from the farm to get reinforcements at the deadline. So this is kind of the angels and they might not have much else by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you guys. It's, it's just, there's a lot of pieces here that that are close to contention and then there's, there's some real weak spots and, and this is a team just defined by its strengths and weaknesses. There's not a lot of like just competent players, like the players in the middle on the, on their squad, right? There's, there's either deficiencies or absurd strengths. So yes. it's um I I think it's fair to say to expect one of the uh, Adele or, or or Marsh to to now you got Marsh and Walsh in my head confused then, <laughs> um but it uh it, I think you know the it seems like one of them you know is a is a good bet to to break out and like and as you said Marsh is at least a the defense means he's going to be okay yeah there's a floor there yeah so it um i don't know i mean in looking at you know i'm, I'm gonna skip to the next uh thing here but like the most so breakout pick let's do we can but yeah. um, the most important rookie is a really interesting player from is it on this team is interesting because they don't really have as meg just said like no farm system players but there's this one fellow um who I, the la times wrote about and i'm i'm taking an interest in his career now you can probably guess who i'm talking about his name is uh, michael stefanik 
He's sort of like David Fletcher-esque in some ways and that he came from a smaller school. This was a much smaller school and um, really crushed last year in uh, double and triple A. And uh, he might, I wonder if they're going to try to use him as their, um, their the other end of the middle infield and then move Fletcher to short, something like that as, as the season progresses. I could see that. He's like the one guy who there's, there's some real upside. So to go back to breakout pick, I would say like one of the two, pick, take your picks, Marsh or uh, <laughs> Yeah, Marsh or Adele, Adele, and then and Stefanik is like maybe the one real chance at a at a, an important rookie that you that I see there. Yeah, I think he's Rule Five eligible, so he they have reason to sort of get a sense of what they have in him, um, and might do that at the big league level. Is Detmer still rookie eligible? He is. Yeah. Okay. Well, he'll he'll be my guy then, because I I am a believer in him. I mean, he just he missed so many bats in Double A, Triple A, and then things uh, started out okay, and then sort of went south, and the control wasn't there, and he was homer prone. But it was you know five starts. I mean, I think he has some pretty nasty stuff and also some pretty aesthetically pleasing stuff and he climbed quickly so I I think that maybe he could kind of consolidate that and he's definitely important because of the pitching depth issues that we've discussed he's probably yeah he's a better pick just because it's um like they absolutely need a two or three starter to emerge and he's like really the only player that can become that this season right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all right well any other stories of interest for you with the angels i mean nothing is more interesting to me in baseball than otani and trout so (laughs) but i'm curious if they will draft even one position player this year (laughs) that's a good question yeah (laughs) yeah this team has made some drafting mistakes over the years we could say (laughs) that's a very charitable Charitable uh, matt tice yeah there's there's some choices that they made that there were other choices that were more that were more popular at the time that pro- proved to be uh, that would have proved to be far better selections, you know. Yeah. So it's uh, they're they're really uh, they're really hurting as a result of that, you know, five seven years down the line. Yeah, and I guess another thing to watch is the Otani extension question, and you know he is signed through next season, but. I don't know why he would necessarily be motivated to sign an extension. I think, you know, Mike Trout did. Mike Trout was content there for whatever reason and just wanted to stick around. But Otani, you know, he's made a couple of comments and and some of them there was question about whether it was interpreted correctly or whether it was taken out of context. But he clearly wants to win. That does seem to be important to him. And no one really knows exactly why he picked the Angels in the first place still. (laughs) Like that still seems to be something of a mystery and whether it's just that he thought that they were really committed to letting him be a two-way player which if that was part of the reason then that has certainly panned out but yeah I don't know like they just haven't demonstrated that they can win with him or with Trout so if you're Otani and you know that you could have a home anywhere and be a bigger star elsewhere and play in the postseason elsewhere I don't know how much he cares about stardom and endorsements and all of that he has plenty of endorsements as it is especially in Japan so you know I just would probably be in wait and see mode myself if I were Shohei Otani but they certainly have a reason to try to keep him. But if they don't, then you do start to wonder about the window, right? Because you have Trout, but if he's getting older and Rendon is getting older and Otani could potentially be leaving and you don't have strong reinforcements from the farm, I don't know. It's like the window does seem to be possibly closing, which is why I think there's frustration with Artie Moreno and 
the lack of spending in some areas. Not that this has been one of the worst offenders in terms of payroll, but it seems like he has treated the competitive balance tax threshold as a, a pretty hard cap other than one early year, I think his second year of owning the team. So you just perpetually would like to see them make one more move, maybe, and they just haven't quite done that. Yeah. So you're telling me you, Ben, like me, once a month or so, just wonder why Shohei Otani picked the Angels and think about <laughs> yep, it for a little while? There. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> I'm kind of happy it worked out that way because, again, like I, I feel like Joe Madden has been a good manager for him. I don't know whether he's a good manager, period, or not, but for Otani specifically and just letting yeah. him do his thing, I think that's worked out great. And my main interest is letting Otani do his thing more so than like whether he's on a good team or whether the Angels are good. Although I would like Otani to be on a good team because that's the other way I think that he could top last year. I mean, yes, he could be so good at pitching and, and just like cut out that first month of last year where I guess he was effective from a run prevention standpoint, but he was all over the place and not going deep into games like remove that just have him be a stable starting pitcher who knows like maybe he's a Cy Young contender this year but also another way to top it would be for him to be in the postseason and that is not under his control but just imagine how much fun that would be to see Otani starting a big game in October as a pitcher and a hitter I mean that would really ramp things up to another level yeah and I mean also Mike Trout playing again in the postseason yep that would be nice I'd like It'd to be see nice that. Yeah, it'd be nice for Andy McCullough to stop being able to make fun of uh, Mike Trout's career postseason record. That would be nice. <laughs> you know, Andy and I had a little dispute recently about about Trout's uh, one, uh, you know, his one success. And I'd like to <laughs> to litigate this on this podcast. Please. You know, he, uh, you know, we were, I forget where we were, but recently we, I said that I, I proudly noted that I was in attendance for Trout's one postseason hit. <laughs> Um, you know, in Kansas City in 2014, and he Andy remembered the pitcher, uh, which I didn't, but he thought it was a single. And you, you guys know what it was, right? He hit a homer, right? right. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So there we go. I just I'd like to use this opportunity to get my side out and no other side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we should move on to well, take your pick. Where do you want to go? Do you want to go Mariners? You want to go Rangers? Oh, definitely. I mean, if we're going in order, yeah, I, I got the Mariners like a, a, a double-digit wins ahead of the of the Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we haven't had a set order exactly, but yeah, loosely best to worst. So, okay, let's talk about the Mariners. They have made some major offseason moves. So, what was your favorite? I don't. I spent a little time on this. I I don't know. I think I like I like I like a lot of them a good amount. I don't love. I I, I feel kind of similarly about about the three bigger moves, and I, I think I think I'm gonna go with Frazier, just because I don't think they gave up a lot. It does not seem like, and I think he is a good player. I know he didn't play like one down the stretch last season, but I I think he's a good one. You know, I think they gave up a fair amount for for Winker and Suarez. I like that trade just fine. I think Rob Ray is a, a, could be really really good, and so don't mind that either. But I think Adam Frazier makes a lot of sense in the, in the way that like. That could be a sneaky three to four win ad at a not significant cost. Yeah, I just think Jesse Winker is like a really good baseball player and he he elevates, uh, you know, I think Frazier is too, but I think Winker brings more in terms of elevating what this club is going to be able to do from an offensive perspective. Because last year they they scored timely runs, but they didn't score as many of them as might be useful. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, he is a platoon player, right? But he's like the long side of the platoon. And against righties, he's, I mean, he's been one of the 
He's one of the ten best right-handed yeah, hitters yeah. of right-handed pitching in baseball. Absolutely, I, yeah. I'm with yeah. you on that. I just, you know, it's just that it comes without the lefty value and and not yeah. much defensive value. But no, I mean, it's it's a good ad, and 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 like in in the same transaction, like I think Suarez is going to be better than he was last year, without a doubt. So, um, yeah. I, I like it. I, I like. I think it's uh, not the way I expected them to build their 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 roster this offseason, but I, I I like it nonetheless. Yeah, how about that? It's uh, they add the Cy Young winner, and <laughs> not the best offseason move, according to us so far. But that was also good, I yeah. think. <laughs> I think it was. I just well, like I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, how good is yeah, he going the, to be over the next? I, I just have no. Right. I don't have a good enough sense of like what he is over that contract. Like, yeah. obviously, there's more upside without a doubt. But like, you know, do you can you count on? I just have no idea what to expect from this fellow after after what he did from 15 to, to 19 in Arizona. Like, it's just. He's, I've seen him. I've seen him pitch really, really well, and I've seen him be totally lost. Um, and I'm, I'm without having observed him that closely last year. I don't know what he is, you know, start to start for the next few years. Well, greatest strength. I wrote down competency. Um, <laughs> it, it seems like the the this was my thing with the team last year. Is like the I like that the like there's a bunch of like the lineup in general is just a bunch of solid players across the board pretty much like what's the what's the highest what's the highest and lowest fan projections for a, for a for a mariners position player for mariners position this year what a good question it's got to be the it might be the smallest margin in baseball i would think oh yeah among them although i think the error bars on some of those projections are pretty wide given some of the givens but yeah i mean you know yeah it could Kalanick could Rodriguez be a lot better than they're projected to be or a lot worse? Yeah, absolutely. But like I, the, the the guys that are assembled, you know, J.P. Crawford kind of defines competency, I think, you know, yeah. um, Hanniger has been better than that, but probably is projected to be just solid. Um, and I, I just think it's a, that's sort of how they won what they did last year. My estimation is that they just it's it's solid. You know, Ty France is, is, is solid as a DH or, or first base type. There's there's just a lot of competency across the board. And I think that's a that's a strength when you look at what the, you know, in contrast to the angels, you know, like the, their, yeah. their, 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 their worst positions are dramatically better than the angels worst positions. Weaknesses. It's kind of the contrast of that is like, who's going to be the, um, the best hitter in on this squad, you know, who is going to pace the lineup in, in hitting um, when who's the player who carries them when, when they, uh, when, when the rest of the lineup is amid a slump. I don't know. You know, Kyle Lewis had was good in 2020. I I, I don't know. I mean, I, Kalanick could be really good. You know, I thought Ken Rosenthal's story this week in The Athletic about his work with Mark McGuire was really interesting and auspicious. I, I just, there's no one who you can count on to put up a um, a four-plus win offensive season or even three-plus, I would maybe go to. Um, and so it's it's the it's sort of the opposite of, like, the, the competency across the board. Mm-hmm. They're a weird club because... On the one hand, like you can't look at what they did this off season and say that they didn't make additions. Like we said, they like brought in the reigning uh, Cy Young winner, and they made this big trade that remade a big part of their lineup, and they have all of these exciting prospects. But you do get the sense, and I know that it takes two to tango when it comes to free agency signing. So it could well be that people were just like Seattle famously sucks, so we don't want to go there. But it does kind of feel like for a club that said this is the opening of our competitive window. You know, they could have perhaps used a bit more when it came to this strange offseason. I mean, we project them as having like one of the smaller payrolls in in the game. I think right now roster resource has them at 22. So, you know, it's 105 million. Now I know they're going to get production from the prospects, but if you're trying to end the longest playoff drought in the majors, 
maybe you want to spend a little bit more than 105 million dollars i don't know who's to say yeah that's what i was surprised by i guess that's 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 good context that i didn't have but that's i would when, when the offseason began i thought they were going to do more spending and less acquiring by trade yes the, the improvements to their roster but it, it, yeah. it's hard to critique it because it, it seems to have worked okay um but maybe you could have done it with a little bit more money too and then been really in position to overtake the astros well and i guess some of the thinking here is that you know, while they will stay away, I imagine, from their marquee prospects, they do have a deep system and in theory could do something at the deadline if they wanted to. So it's not as if this is the, you know, the co- the concrete isn't necessarily dry on this roster even before the call-ups. But I don't know. It would have been nice to feel more confident. Like my, my dad would like to feel more confident about the Seattle Mariners <laughs> in 2022 <laughs> than he does. Yeah. So with the breakout pick then be Kelnick. I mean, I guess if you're talking about breakouts and most important rookie, then maybe it's uh, Kelnick and Tulio Rodriguez. I guess those are the, the pretty obvious. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't spend a lot of time on that at all. It just felt like, oh yeah. I mean, I think he's going to be better than he, I think Jared Kelnick is going to be better than he was. That's breakout. I think um, Julio Rodriguez is going to be good whenever he arrives. I think he's really important because he offers maybe the most upside, uh, uh, you know, of, and, and could fix the weakness that we were talking about. Maybe not this year, but potentially. And so, yeah, those those feel like pretty solid selections. Can I offer a third? Sure. Which is that in a rotation that is dependent on like Marco Gonzalez and Chris Flexen, Matt Brash, who we currently project as their fifth starter, might end up being a, a pretty important rookie for them uh, as they look to to navigate Logan Gilbert's second season and whatever they're going to get out of Robbie Ray. So got to get excited about Matt Brash, you guys. Mm-hmm. Brash heads. I've been seeing some highlights and I am very, um, very intrigued. Can't say I knew yeah. a ton about this fellow for a while now, but it's um, lately I he's he's piqued my interest. Yeah, he's maybe one of the talks of spring training, it seems like. Yes. And I like Logan Gilbert, too. Yeah. You know, not that he was bad, but it seems like there could be more there. And I know there was a, a Corey Brock piece the other day about some changes that he's made and reworked the shape of his non-fastballs and maybe improved his tunneling. So I think even just the peripherals from last season, it seems like he could take a step forward. So, Yeah, and this is an organization that I think in the last couple of years actually has gotten really good at sort of pitch design. Like you look at some of not only their prospects who have taken a step forward, but then you look at, and we maybe should talk about the bullpen here, you know, someone like Paul Seawald and what they were able to do to help sort of unlock him after he came over from the Mets. It's like, this is this is a club that does pitch design now. How exciting. <laughs> right. Yeah, the bullpen was so good last year and from a lot of unexpected sources. And so that's always a cause for concern. I mean, there are a lot of potential things you could point to and say regression, right? Just the fact that they took that large leap and wins and a lot of it was bullpen dependent and a lot of it was clutchness and timing dependent. So all sorts of ways that a lot of that could not carry over. I mean, they have tried, I guess, to offset some of that. You know, they have... Ken Giles, I don't know what they get out of him at this point, but he should be in the mix, and Sergio Romo, and a full season of Diego Castillo, so there are some more recognizable names, at least in the bullpen now. I don't know whether that will mean that the unit as a whole will be as effective as it was, because it's tough to top that. Yeah, my my central rule, I think I've said this on this podcast before, I almost never try to include uh, bullpens in my expectations for the season, just because it feels (laughs) like they're 
they're, they're un, unknowable. And so you're, you're just, I, it, it's almost beyond what, what are, what I can, what can I can consider and predict. And like, I just like, yeah, I'll just project everyone to be in the middle basically. And like, I'll be surprised a little bit, but like, maybe you won't, you know, it'll save you from being totally wrong. Like it's, it's just, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, did I expect Casey Sadler to be dominant last year? Absolutely not. Like, and that's, you know, sucks that he won't be here, won't be around this year, but like, it's, yeah. it, I, I don't know the, um, I, I just have like, we we could we would all be we could make fools of ourselves trying to predict who's going to be good out of that pen right out of most pens so I, I don't know I think I've said before that I would not be surprised if they sort of matched their win total from last season but just deserved it more <laughs> that's a good way to put it <laughs> yeah and you know we don't have a bounce back player category but if we did I'd, I'd put Suarez in there I mean yeah. I'm not saying that he's gonna hit 49 homers again which I still can't believe that that happened I mean that is like peak 2019 juice yeah. ball that Eugenio Suarez hit 49 homers <laughs> I mean, he has power you know he hit yeah. 34 the year before that he hit 31 last year and he wasn't even that good so you know in this ballpark though that might be a bit tough on him but he was so good in the last month of last season, he totally yeah. turned it on and it seemed like he hit in some hard luck. So I could see him bouncing back at least. But I noticed that none of us had Evan White as a breakout pick. Oh, no. <laughs> I know oh, that oh, no. recently He's hurt again, broken. yeah. Yeah, he has a sports hernia and just had surgery for that. So that's an issue. But yeah. I mean, breakout for Evan White would be like 70 WRC plus or something at this point. It's just, I'm sorry, Evan White, but uh, things can't get worse for him, presumably. No, I mean, he got his money, so he at least has that to mm -hmm. fall back on. But things things don't look great for him. And I would prefer, and I'm sure he would too, if Kyle Lewis's knees were more conducive to playing baseball. But I mean, we know Suarez will not play even one inning at shortstop. So we have he has yeah. that going for him this year. Right, that too. And I don't know how much that was a part of the fact that he wasn't hitting the way that they wanted him to. The Reds just constantly playing people out of position for strange reasons, but can't hurt. And and yeah, we should also mention, I guess, on the topic of the bullpen, this is one of the many teams that is going into the season, at least, without anointing a closer. And Scott Service said, we'll have a number of guys who will finish off games for us, which I mentioned on our last episode, I think. But as I've been reading the series that Jeff Zimmerman does at Rotographs, where he mines the news and just collects all of these little tidbits uh, about news from spring training, just so many teams, it's, no, we're not naming a closer. We're just going to play matchups. We're just going to see what happens. And in some of those cases... Ultimately, you do get a closer or someone who's the de facto closer, but just the fact that so many teams are comfortable going into the season without naming one shows you just how much that role has changed and how much teams have uh, shifted how they handle saves. But lots of interesting questions here. I guess there's still the Justice Sheffield question as well lingering kind of the the pitching equivalent of Evan White, I guess, in some ways. So. I don't know. It's uh, an interesting roster. It has upgraded. I don't know that it will be more successful, but this does seem like a roster on the rise, right? I mean, this is the ascending team or yeah. one of the ascending teams in this division, and I don't know how far away they are from entering a season as the favorite, whether that could be as soon as next year, whether it might take a couple of years, but it certainly seems as if it's coming sometime in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I'm with you. 
All right, well, let's talk about the Rangers, who are maybe not a good team yet, but they are a team with a a lot more recognizable names and star-level players than they had last year, so that's something. They were one of the big spenders this winter, although a lot of that spending occurred prior to the lockout, so we have to cast our minds back. But John Gray, Marcus Semyon, Corey Seager, what's your favorite move of this offseason? Semyon? Semyon is my answer. I also like Mitch Garver uh, as an addition, but yeah, I'm going. Um, I'm going Marcus Semyon. I yeah. Mm-hmm. And to what do you attribute the Rangers spending this offseason? Because I, I think a lot of people, while saying, "Hey, it's nice to have another team in the mix for big free agents," people were questioning, "Well, do they think they're ready? Is it just that they want to get ahead? That they think that well, these guys will be good for several years, and we'll get good at some point there, and we just happen to like the free agents who are available this winter, maybe more so than next winter, and so we will strike a little early. Better to be a little early than a little late. And I guess there's also the question of like, is this trying to promote the ballpark in some way? I don't know whether that window has closed already like the the new ballpark smell has sort of worn off already i guess but there was some conversation like when they went after rendon right it was like oh they're gonna spend because they have a new ballpark opening and they want to put some fans in the seats or give the fans who are in the seats something good to watch and then of course the pandemic happened and there were no fans in the seats at least until the postseason when people were playing in the ballpark but i don't know it's uh an interesting timing i think that they went kind of all in or or part of the way in this winter to answer your question i don't know why uh they they chose to add so much money this year when they're going to be a 70 something one team i guess my answer would be because their owner has the money to do so and it you know probably won't affect his life in any in any real way in any negative way at least to spend um i i don't you know i don't really get signing Corey Seager and Marcus Semyon when both of these players are you know are not like they don't project to be better in 2024 than in 2022 and so you're paying for their best years to come at a time when um when your team is not in position to win uh, you know and so it doesn't make a ton of sense to me but you know hey I'm not going to complain too much about about the team deciding to do that you know I think someone like say a Suzuki with the Cubs makes more sense um when you're when you're trying to spend right now, but also not exactly win right now either, because there exists the possibility that as he's adjusting from the MPB, he could he could get better over time, and he's still only 27 versus um you know Semyon is is over 30 and Seager's 28 is is pretty young you know for sure, but it isn't going to stay at shortstop forever, and so I, I don't totally see the thought process behind it. I, yeah, I don't I don't totally get it. Uh, I don't understand the John Gray move really at all. I. I uh, it, yeah, I, I don't see the upside much there, but maybe I'm overstated, not a properly appreciating um, the impacts of Coors Field. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't particularly, like, to sum it up, I don't really like what they've done in the sense that, like, I don't really understand why you would do what you've done this offseason when you've done it. I mean, I think they've acquired good players. Corey Seager at his best is, like, one of the best hitters I've ever seen. And Marcus yeah. Semien was obviously incredible last year, but I, I just don't, I don't know that I understand the structure of it right now. All right, strengths and weaknesses has currently <laughs> constituted then. The strength is, is the middle infield, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, one of the best duos in baseball, right? And um, could, you know, could easily, you know, you're talking about 12 or 14 wins possible out of that group. So, and the weakness is going to be, I mean, a lot of things, but uh, the rotation for one, like, I mean, the, the back end of the rotation there projects to be um, not great. 
there's not a lot of uh, counting. Like, there's not a lot of players you can count on. I mean, I think you know some people in the game believe in Spencer Howard. I, I know people who do. Um, I could see that happening. I, I liked the trade for him last year. I thought that was a really smart move to be able to to turn Kyle Gibson into that. Um, but I don't. I don't see it right now as a uh, as a competent back end of the rotation. Certainly not. I mean, I think like you know how many starters do the Astros have that are better than the the, the Rangers third. Right, like they have Martin Perez in as their number two starter right now, you know. Mm-hmm. It's fine, but it's not, I mean, it, it's not overwhelming. No. I do, I like Gray. I mean, you know, I don't know about the, the terms, but just the idea of getting Gray. I mean, he's been fairly effective despite course Field, and I just kind of mentally figure, like, anyone else would be better than the Rockies probably at improving players potentially. I mean, you know, they've done a decent job of, of developing pitchers, so maybe that's unfair, but I've already read something about, like, oh, he's uh, tweaking his slider, and, yeah. you know, that was already a nasty pitch for him, so maybe it gets even better. Uh, you know, it was perplexing to me that the Rockies didn't make more of an effort or any effort to keep John Grave for or even extend a qualifying offer or anything, but I could see things kind of clicking potentially for him, just getting out of cores and getting out of that organization. I mean, yeah, he's fine. He's not. I'm not. He's not a bad pitcher by any means. Like, it's more of just a matter of like, if that's your number three or number four, that seems solid. But like, what's the upside here of of him as your ace um, and committing <laughs> that money right now to him? When he's thirty, but yeah, I mean, the Rockies absolutely like. I don't even get me started on the Rockies. Not you know this. Not even trying to. Not even being in position to recruit their players to return between Story and Gray, it doesn't make any sense. It's just it's ridiculous. I am really curious to see like what they're able to do because I don't. I think that this organization is maybe at a an interesting spot when it comes to pitching development and whether they're able to actually tweak Gray to give him that sweeper and they're able to improve Dunning and they're able to help Howard out. Like there's if. If we see steps forward from those guys, like they're going to be good for the big league roster just on their own, but it also would pretend better things for the organization in the years to come if we look at them and say like, oh, this is a club that is really good at like competent pitch design. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Any other uh, strengths, weaknesses to, to highlight? Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I've been reading um, a lot of Levi Weaver's coverage in The Athletic and, and trying to uh, understand, you know, what, what what this org thinks they have and where and where they're um, and where they're projecting to be better. And, and it's interesting. I think, you know, there's, I, I can't say I paid a lot of attention to them last year. And so I feel like I'm not really qualified, but it seems like they have some people, you know, Nate Lau, or, I, I get, my Laos are all confused now. Um, and, oh my God, my Laos are so confused. Um, whichever Lau they have playing, or low they have playing first base. There's too many Lows and Laos. They, they, and, and Andy Ibanez, they have some, I mean, like, I think they have the hitting talent. Like, whenever Josh Chung is, is there, they have, they, I, I see what they're, I see what they're thinking with the the arrival of their top guys from the system. So I, I, I think this could be an, ex- I, I imagine, like, probably I'm buzz, like killing the buzz of any Rangers fans. I mean, not, but you shouldn't let me kill your buzz because you know the team better and um, you, there's, there's reason to be excited here. And it's just not this year is all. And so my critique is really just that they, they've, push their resources towards this year when I don't, uh, I don't totally get why. And I, you just hope that Corey C you're still the t- at the top of his game when, um, when the rest of your players are ready for that. So, but yeah. there's, 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 it's, there's things to dream on for sure. This one is Nathaniel Lowe. Yes. The, right. The Lows, <laughs> the Lows are elsewhere. <laughs> Thank you for that. Nathaniel. I, yeah. Not Nate. Yeah. He's not Nate right. anymore. He's yeah. grown up now. 
That's the real. That's the real answer. There, it's not. Okay. All right. So I guess that brings us to breakout pick. If you have one for Texas, I'm looking around here, Ben. I don't know. I mean, um, you know, I I know some people who think Dane Dunning is is pretty good. I I I'm not qualified really to say if that's true. He was okay last year. I mean, you know, he's he's a he's a he's a major league pitcher, and that's not bad on a staff that you know yeah he still seems pretty breakout and so if he puts up you know 150 innings of a four era that's does that count as breaking out i might i might take him <laughs> sure, or, sure. or our guy nathaniel and then nathaniel already broke out um i i yeah i mean you know they they got the uh they got the two calhouns there now um cole and willie um <laughs> willie could eventually break out he i believe he can hit I believe he can hit. So I, I don't know. I got like a lot of quarter half breakouts, but no one that I expect to really be great. That isn't yet. That isn't yet great. <laughs> yeah. Got to love the, he's a major league pitcher compliment. Yeah. <laughs> he's a baseball player. He's a guy, you know, he's, yeah. he's, yeah. he's, he's a guy. <laughs> sure. All right. Important rookie. Do any of those players count as rookies? I don't keep up with the rookies. Um, Josh Jung is, you know, when he plays, is yeah. going to be is going to be good. It sounds like I believe in that based on people who know a lot more about baseball than me believing in him. So I, I would I would say even though he is not going to be healthy for the entire season, I think he he's an important rookie for their future. Not, nothing is really important for them this year. I mean, they're not going to win no matter what happens. And so I would say Josh Jung for establishing himself as a as an elite bat for their future would be very important. Their real estate developments are very important to them, I'm sure. So that's something. Yeah, yeah. We're we're thinking outside the box now. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Or or inside the box, depending on how you feel about the ballpark. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know they've made some coaching changes, which is something we didn't mention. The Angels changed scouting directors over the offseason, which uh, maybe is understandable given (laughs) some of the Angels' uh, farm system woes. But uh, Tim McElveen took over now. He was with the Twins and the Brewers, I think, and the Rangers, I guess, are trying to rob some of the smart and successful teams, too, in that they hired Donnie Ecker from the Giants as their bench coach and Tim Hires from the Red Sox as their hitting instructor so they're trying to I guess revamp their player development and learn some of the things that have helped other teams get ahead but I don't know it's it's gonna take both the superstars that they signed playing at a high level and continuing to play at a high level and then some of the prospects who are coming along really hitting which was the issue with the Rangers over the past several years, right? I mean, they had the prospects and they just had failure to launch in various ways, right? And that core that they had put together just kind of never came together other than Joey Gallo, who's gone now. Yep. they. Uh, it's, it sounds like the, I'm more personally concerned about the pitching staff this time around, but I understand your, your argument. Yeah, it, we shall see. Chris Woodward seems to be a good motivator at the very least um, of his roster, and um, I think that the, they'll be in position at some point, just not this year. They, they could be really interesting next year, right? It, it, it seems. Yeah. It seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Spencer Howard? potentially maybe yeah maybe yeah we mentioned him earlier but i i can see that you know there's hope here yeah it's not it's certainly not you know uh a hopeless situation but spencer howard was pretty bad when he pitched last year wow yeah um holy yeah. potatoes it wasn't, it wasn't the it wasn't the best the peripherals were better <laughs> yeah <laughs> can you be a breakout at almost 29 like if if andy abanez gets 
a full-time everyday job can he break out you can break i mean rich hill broke out at 35 right i mean you could break out at any age can't you it's encouraging i'd like to think so yeah (laughs) and uh i am kind of curious about adolis garcia and i guess he was the breakout of last year or at least for like half of last year and then he came crashing back to earth at least offensively which was not unexpected but He's 29 and, you know, not great plate discipline. And I just, I don't know, like if, if he hits like he did in the second half or for the whole season, then uh, that's not so good. But if he could sort of split the difference, then he'd be playable. He was a pleasant surprise, at least in a year when they didn't have a ton of them. But yeah, yeah this is, it's definitely a, a beyond this year horizon, unless absolutely everything goes right, probably. So That takes us to a team whose horizon is also beyond this year, and that's the Oakland A's, and we only have to spend so much time on them because uh, they really did not make much of an effort to get people to talk about them. This offseason was about disassembling or building for the future, if you want to take a charitable view of it, but is there a favorite offseason move? I mean, (laughs) take your pick of the, the fire sale moves if there's no addition you're excited about. Yeah, can can I pick? No, I, I just don't want to support what they've done in any way, and I don't want to. You know, have they added anything that's not by trade? And so, in every trade, they may get they got worse for the for the for the current moment. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna respectfully decline to offer a uh, a, a pick here. I just it's just I don't like it. Yeah, I don't think that this has to change your answer at all. I mean, like I guess they they signed Stephen Vote. Oh yeah, you know they, they, brought, they added a couple of vets. They, yeah, that's they brought back Jed, Jed Lowry. Jed, yeah, the recent the recent ads on the same sub million dollar deal. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think they did okay with getting back prospects. I just think it's disappointing that a team that had you know a, a, an incredible core. I mean, I don't know if if the core was properly appreciated around the sport between Olsen, Chapman, Loriano, Murphy, and Canna, yeah. like the, that fivesome of like of talent. Uh, you know, Canna was free agent, obviously, but that was a that's quite a um quite an assembly of uh, of of really above average players, and uh, to get rid of that as unceremoniously as they did is is really disappointing. So, uh, yeah, it um I, I got no one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, right. If you accept the premise that they had to do that, which uh, there's no reason to accept that premise, then I guess you could say, well, they got good returns for a few of those moves, maybe. But I don't know. If you want to take an optimistic stance, you could say, well, at least they went for mostly major league ready or, or high level players. And, you know, maybe some of them slot in right away, like Christian Pache, for instance. But you know, there's no reason to be an apologist for John Fisher yeah. at this point. So <laughs> I think I understand your stance there. And who knows if they're even done or whether there will be a Sean Manaya trade or even a Frankie Montas trade at some point after we finish this recording. So yeah, or, or later this season, Loriano Murphy. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um... yeah. I would like to see Yusmero Petit come back. If not here, at least somewhere. Someone please sign Yusmero Petit, one of my favorite pitchers in baseball. I know last year was not his best year and didn't end in the best possible way, but I think there's still more left in the tank. He is one of the most fascinating pitchers. So I hope he catches on somewhere and he should catch on somewhere. So yeah, his run in relief from 17 to, to, to 20 and even 20 oh, yeah, is, yeah. is just, I mean, it is really remarkable. Yeah, Without yeah. the strikeouts, too. The bulk and the quality, but he does it in a a weird and wonderful way with the deception and the command and everything. So given the remains of this roster, what would you say are the strengths and weaknesses? 
I mean, they still have some good players, right? I mean, these 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 they still have a, a fair amount of three or four win players on their squad, right? I mean, I I believe it's Sean Murphy for sure. I think he's a, a, yeah. a talented fella. I think Loriano is an uncertainty because of the steroid suspension, and um, yeah, we don't know what what to see. Tony Kemp had obviously had a breakout year, and I, that's great for him. They, they have some talent, and if they keep an eye on Montes, I mean, these these are these are these are fairly good players. I mean, other teams in the sport would could have theoretically chosen to build around these players. Maybe maybe it's a little late in their in their cycle with when they're approaching free agency, but there's there's talent here. Um, I, like as as far as the position group, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just been dismantled. I guess catcher. I mean, I, I think they're good back there, and um, yes. vote, vote will be nice as a backup and and generally lovely fellow to be around. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'd be open to hearing your guys's too. I, I yeah, I don't know. And Murphy, I suppose. <sighs> Yeah, well, and the, the, the tricky thing with Murphy is that it's hard not to read into the tea leaves of, not that you, again, as I pointed out once on this podcast, you do need more than one catcher, but it's hard not to read into the acquisition of Langoliers as them setting themselves up to be able to deal Murphy when he reaches arbitration. Oh, yeah, that's a <laughs> so, good point. So, you know, like, yeah, catcher for now, question mark? It's just really too bad because I, I agree with you. This is... There were a lot of really great players on this squad, and it would not have taken much in the way of investment in either the guys they had for now or, you know, bringing complementary pieces to at least make them competitive within the West this year. So it sucks. Yep. All right. Anyone who could take a step forward here, breakout-wise, or any rookies you're <laughs> more or less excited to see any of the proceeds of these trades, potentially? I think Pache is a super interesting fellow and they're like what you know what is the bad what is he i mean we know the upside of the of the defense there and um but it, it seems like so much yeah i i really don't know if he's a uh replacement level player at this point or if he's you know three to four i mean it seems like it the it, it's sort of a similar thing actually you know in, in a, they arrived here at a much different path but it's sort of similar to when like the a's called up loriano and that like you know they were calling him up for his defense and then it turned out he, his bat was actually pretty good. And whether that was aided by uh, illicit substances remains to be seen. But like we, I just don't know. And so it's it, it's it's a super interesting thing. Um, you know, for how uh, that depends. That'll that'll do a lot to show how quickly the, the A's will be back to contention. Which you know, because they're a well-run uh, front office, at least if not ownership group, I think that they. Uh, I expect that to be pretty soon. And so his, his uh, you know, what kind of bat he offers long term is is you know is a huge. Uh, differentiator in this i'm curious if like you know if we can get a healthy season from aj puck i'd like to see what that ends up being like you know the injury stuff has obviously just limited him to the point that like he fell out at the top 100 he is somehow still prospect eligible so i hope he's good just so that we don't have to write him about him again next year (laughs) right yeah i don't know what else there is in terms of interesting storylines i mean it's not interesting necessarily but the ballpark obviously just i mean it's a tiresome story it's just a depressing story usually but maybe there's some movement some resolution there and unless there has been a secret extension or one that i was unaware of i believe this is billy beans last year under contract and that has happened before and he's ended up staying and he's come close to leaving in the past it seems like and ultimately hasn't but 
is this finally the last stand the last year for Billy Bean in Oakland? I don't know. Like, you could certainly see why he would be interested in moving on either to a different team where he doesn't have to deal with tearing down and rebuilding constantly or maybe to another endeavor entirely. It seemed like he was making some flirtations with maybe pivoting to ownership in some capacity potentially. So I will be curious to see what happens there, although I don't know how much of an impact that would have on a day-to-day basis. He's obviously still very involved, but that whole front office, a lot of it has been in place for like decades at this point. So if he were to move on, I think the the lineage would still be strong and, and carried on. So something to watch. And, you know, I guess you have a new manager too, right? So that's right. Uh, that's something. I mean... You have Mark Kotze, who I think is highly thought of, but we don't know what kind of manager he will be. And that just sort of set the tone for the offseason. Just like, Bob Melvin, we will spare you what is to come. <laughs> just, it really was just, an announcement of what they plan to do. Like, yeah, in, in a yeah. way that you rarely see. Yes. Yeah, right. No compensation or anything. Just like, hey, thanks for your service. We are not going to subject you to <laughs> what is happening here. So go uh, be in San Diego and try to win. Bob, thank you. It's such a funny move. It, it it really was them letting them, you know, it was reported surely by then that they had planned to do this, but it was their mm-hmm. formal announcement. Like, yeah, we are dismantling the squad. Get out if you can. Yeah. Hmm. Well, <laughs> is that a wrap on the AL West and the A's? I, I guess so. I'm going to, so, I'll, I'll throw a little support to, to a breakout pick. This is strictly for, um strictly for aesthetic reasons. Um, I mentioned this to you guys off the air, but James Caprillion is a fan uh-huh. of music that I like the war on drugs. And I saw him running to the, to the crowd as the, as under the pressure began, he sprinted in from the bathroom and I, I I'm going to, I'm going to pick him as a breakout pick. He had a perfectly fine season last year and uh, I'm going to pick him as a breakout pick just for, for that alone. If that's okay. <laughs> All right good a reason as any i suppose and i guess it's it's not a not a fun storyline but i do just kind of wonder like how low can the attendance go in oakland this year because i believe they were 29th in attendance last year and they have just really actively repelled their fans basically i mean they have sent the signal that uh they want to leave or that they're holding the city hostage and given that they have tried to have one foot out the door or at least are using other cities as leverage and now have deconstructed the roster just not a ton of reasons to go to A's games right now unless you just like the vibe and the atmosphere out there which is a decent reason but you can't count on great baseball now so it could get ugly yeah the gap between how many people attend Dodgers games and A's games this year could be like among the biggest in baseball history you would think right I mean it's going to be it's it's going to be really large and it's such a shame because the, the fans that they do have there are so, like, they care about that baseball team. And they, you know, they go to the Coliseum. They want to hang out. They bang their drums. Like, it's just really too bad because they, they, could, they could be much more as a franchise than they choose to be, or at least than ownership chooses to be. It's really a shame. I agree. I, I meant I put weakness, John Fisher. So I'm, I'm, I just want to note yep. that for the record, too. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, again, go get Pedro's book. It's called How to Beat a Broken Game, The Rise of the Dodgers in a League on the Brink. It is of general interest to all fans. Check it out on the show page. We will link to where you can find it. And you can find Pedro writing at Fox Sports because Fox Sports has writing again. (laughs) The pivot to video is is past. We have pivoted (laughs) back to writing. 
This life allows multiple pivots. Yes. (laughs) And you can also find him on Twitter at his name, Pedro Mora. So, Pedro, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Meg. Appreciate you guys. All right. That will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. We have two more division previews remaining, the AL East and the NL East, and we will get to those early next week. So they will both be up before opening day, but we will take a little break between previews and bring you an email and banter show next time. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Chris Martins, Doug W., J.J. Evans, Christopher Swanson, and Marco Gasparro. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters get access to great perks such as an Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon people and monthly bonus pods, the latest of which we just posted this week. We did a fun AMA episode, so lots of extras available. Check it out again, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangrafts.com. You can also message us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. There's also an Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Run, run, run.